We always hear about the money roller coasters that pro athletes go on, but there's one category that's an even steeper roller coaster of money challenges. That category, stand-up comics. Today's guest, Bob Wheeler, is the rare combination of stand-up comic and CPA, world-traveling marathon hiker and money therapist. And he's the CFO of the famed Comedy Store in Los Angeles. The Comedy Store has produced the likes of Richard Pryor, Whoopi Goldberg, Dave Letterman, Robin Williams, and Jim Carrey. Wait until you hear how Bob is able to smooth out that money roller coaster that comes along with LA's glitzy show business. I'm Wes Moss. The prevailing thought in America is that you'll never have enough money and it's almost impossible to retire early. Actually, I think the opposite is true. For more than 20 years, I've been researching, studying, and advising American families, including those who started late, on how to retire sooner and happier. So my mission with the Retire Sooner podcast is to help a million people retire earlier while enjoying the adventure along the way. I'd love for you to be one of them. Let's get started. Bob Wheeler, welcome to Austin. Welcome to FinCon. I come here for just a few reasons. This is the mecca of financial talk and the mecca of finding cool financial people that are interesting to talk to and learn from. And there's only, I think, two restaurants that I've ever saved on my Google Maps. And I want to show you here on Google Maps why I'm here. I'm here to interview you in Austin and go to the Tamale House East which is on right off of, I guess it's 5th Street and 6th Street. Yes. So have That's you close. ever been here? I've never there? been to Austin, but I love it. People are nice. People are really nice. <laughs> Wait, you've never, even, you've never I, been to Austin, Texas? I've never been to Austin, Texas. Mm. I mean, I grew up in Tennessee, but never been to Austin. So uh, the, uh, anyway, we, we, we need, you need to go here. I've, I've, I've been to I've, I've been to Austin a couple of times and every time, the first time I was here, I stumbled across, I was here for my brother, my little brothers. I have three, I have uh, four, I'm one of four siblings and my younger brother, younger, younger brother got, this is his bachelor party. Oh, sweet. This is like five or six years ago. And we, I remember walking up and down sixth street, trying to find a place to eat and nothing was open. Yeah. And there was this little place way back it looked kind of far away almost like in a cul-de-sac in an yeah. austin style version of it and it and there was a sign that said something like open since 1950 right and if anything's ever been open that long you know it's got it's got to be somewhat good it's got it has it's got to yeah. be good so we went there and it's a pretty magical little place and the tamales i'm just un unrivaled sweet so i'm going there right after this interview uh all right so the reason there's a lot of reasons i want to talk with you number one you are the CFO of the world famous comedy store in LA. I am. <laughs> but also, but also, if you were to do a filter of humans in the world, there'd only be one that is a comedian and a CPA, and you're a CPA. That's true. Although Bob Newhart was also a CPA. Was he really? He was. He worked at the California Department of Sales tax. So for our audience that may be too young to know Bob Newhart, tell right. tell them who Bob Newhart is. Oh man, he's this brilliant, brilliant, dry humored comic who had a couple of TV shows, but brilliant. If you go back and listen to his albums, which I had to go search, he is hilarious. Wait, wait, when you when you say albums, meaning his comedy albums, like right? He had albums, and he actually started off doing stand up comedy, reading the California sales tax code. 
Oh, like how ridiculous it is? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Like, what? do you remember anything? I, there was something like, if you are deceased, you must do these certain things, <laughs> right? So it's sort of like hard <laughs> if you're deceased to do a lot of reading. So I always like thought things like that were... And you have you have a new book, The Money Nerve, yeah. Navigating the Emotions of Money, which we're going to dive into. But I think that I, – so I'm just so fascinated because I do a lot of public speaking. And when you're speaking, it's particularly about money. And I, and I started in the, in the investment business 25 years ago. And for the first decade or more when I would do talks – the they're always about just the economy. It's like the, right. the consumer spending and housing and interest rates and manufacturing and employment and what's the latest worry of the day. And it was all money, 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 economy, economy. What's the market? And then teaching about the market. You've got to be in the market so many days. Have you met? So the uh, it was very investment focused. And those talks are always at best like a C. Yeah, they're never that good. They're and, and they're like, great if you want to go to sleep at night. They're never good. And yeah. I and I've heard a thousand of them. Yeah. And they're never any good. Yeah. And so I, I go. I, th- I probably heard five hundred financial talks in my life, and they're all, barring maybe three or four of them, they're all forgettable. I can't. So once I wrote a book, uh, my first, my once I started writing and having books, I was able to bring more to the table than just like, hey, what's happening in the economy today? And those talks got to be much more fun and entertaining. Yeah. Going through ha- money and happiness research and yeah. marriage. My latest book has something about sex in it, so everyone's like, oh, tell me about the sex slide. But That's right. But what is what is when you're t- when you're speaking though? Because I have been bored so often in these talks, I want them to be fun. So I want it to be kind of fun and entertaining, and I want people to have fun and laugh. And, but that is, it's, it's not easy to do when you feel like, hey, I got to entertain. So I've always thought in my, there's a few jobs I think are almost impossible. One is like maybe being the president. That, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two oh, is being a stand-up comic. Mm. So tell me, I, that's what I want to talk about first is like, how did you get into that? Were you just like always funny or is it are you funny more when you're on stage like tell me about that life that cycle yeah so i think i probably was always funny because that was easier than fighting i could just run quick i was little so i either had to run or make people laugh bob is not six eight (laughs) by the way (laughs) i I didn't make it into the nba Uh, (laughs) um water boy and uh so yeah i was always doing comedy and people oh you're funny being funny and doing stand-up are not quite the same things. Uh, but I got into sketch comedy first and you have other people. So that was more, uh, comforting. Cause if the sketch bombed, you could say, well, it was Billy. Did it. <laughs> right. Like it wasn't me. Right. It right. was them. Uh, but then at a certain point, I, I and again, tell us what sketch comedy is. So sketch though. comedy is, uh, improv or what you see on Saturday night live, mm-hmm. uh, where it's already awesome. written out and there's six people doing a sketch, you know, Coke, Pepsi, Coke, you know, kind of thing. And so the standup was sort of scary. But for me, uh, I was not a person, unless I knew people really well, I didn't go out and talk to people. I I could be really invisible. But with a microphone, I felt like I could say, like, I hate you, or I could be angry, or I could do all the things that I wasn't supposed to do in real life because I was good, you know. And so comedy gave me the freedom to actually say stuff 
that even though I was hiding behind a very small microphone, it felt very safe for me. Is it because you don't see the crowd or just, you just don't know the people? So it felt like you could go to another place. Well, because I could feel like it was an alter ego. So I could just mm. say, you people suck. Just kidding. Like, <laughs> you know, I judge everybody. No, I don't. Uh, because we do. And so I could say things where, and I could see the audience. I like seeing the audience and like knowing that uh, they're there to have fun. Right. And so it's, 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 I don't know. I, I, for me, it's a lot of pleasure. And there's nothing better. It's the best drug in the world when you have 500 or 1,000 people all laughing. Even if you recite the alphabet, you're like, this is pretty This sweet. is cool. It's pretty sweet. What was your first stand-up? How many years ago was that? Oh, probably. So that was probably 20 years ago. And I was fortunate. My first year went really, really well. When you're stand-up, are you, how much is somewhat, is it totally spelled out? Or is it kind of bullet pointed out? How, how regimented is do you know you what have, you're going to say? You, you know, you have a premise. So mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to tell the story about my family mm -hmm. or I'm going to tell the story about camping. Uh, and I might know some main points, but I don't know all of it. Uh, you know, because if you're up there just... And so then I went to... Nobody's... Yeah, it's boring. Uh, it's, so it's got to be in the moment. And as long as I know my key points... And, and even I actually had a joke... Uh, about pet value days where well, okay, so tell me that yeah tell me this story real quick what is pet, well, value? pet value days it's the day you find out how much it costs medically to save your cat before you determine if your pet has any value right <laughs> like you gotta go ah right and so and i would always say well i draw the line at 500 bucks okay. right <laughs> and actually it wasn't me visa draws the line at 500 bucks right <laughs> and so it's that and people when i first told the story i didn't have it honed and people are like you're evil you would kill a cat i'm like everybody makes this choice sometimes yeah, we right? always have to get to that they're cheaper at the pound you know <laughs> and i love him but you know my cat you know it's how much you know and so and then the joke gets he comes back and he goes well actually it's gonna be in the neighborhood of five thousand dollars to save your cat i'm like oh my cat doesn't want to live in that neighborhood you know i'm like i'm out i'm okay. out right so but then finding that place where it's funny and people don't hate you. Uh, it took a little while? It took a little while. Probably so, took about six months. Well, okay. So did you inherently, were there, were there a lot, was, was a lot, or is, because you're still, you still do this live once in a while at once the comedy right store. Now, it's, I do. It's hard right now to get up a lot because what would happen is do a set. People are like, oh, that's funny. I get off stage. Hey, Bob, can you come sign a check? Hey, uh, health department's here. I'm like, could I just like for five minutes, like revel in the laughter and then go back to being because you're <laughs> full. So when you CPA can take off a, a lot of roles, you can be a CPA and a CFO for a company. And in this case, the company's the comedy store. Right. But are, are you, you're not, a, are you a practicing CPA that does taxes too or no? Yeah. So I actually have an accounting practice with a thousand clients. Oh, wow. That's uh, a lot. And uh, I brought on a partner a couple of years ago. Um, it's a lot of tax returns. Right? It's a lot of tax returns. Yeah. And a lot of babies. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of dependents, right? Yeah. A lot of dependents. Well, I work with a lot of creative folks. So a lot of adult babies too. Yeah. But, oh uh, yeah. I love them. I love them all. Um, I love babies. But uh, <laughs> yeah. So, and actually what's interesting the comedy store, when I first was doing uh, accounting and stand-up, because I was stand-up, you know, paid the bills, and the accounting was it just did, my it passion. It did pay the bills. No, uh, oh, okay. I was like, what? Exactly, yeah. The so, other way around. So yeah. CPA work paid the bills, okay. Yeah, and when I, and so when Mitzi called me, because my good friend Vicky Barbalak from America's Got Talent was like, hey, Mitzi, Bob's a CPA, he can help. They owed like $100,000 in payroll taxes. Oh, it wow. Was, it was a bad situation. And... I realized they had no money to pay me, really. Uh, but there were three stages at the comedy store. All my friends were comics. 
sort of had a skill set and I thought, okay, I sort of got to help. Uh, but I really just want to be a comic. And I realized though, I had to make my other accounting practice be somewhat successful so that I could give time to the comedy store because for years I didn't get paid very much. So it was like almost like a nonprofit. It was a nonprofit for many years. Not true anymore. But do these places, do they undulate? I I almost think of these comedy places where you hear of like, oh, Chris Farley came from here and. You know, Richard Pryor came from your play, from yeah. Comedy oh, Store yeah, in LA. Yeah. Like, Lots. who are some of the, the names? Oh, Roseanne Barr, Robin Williams, oh, uh, Richard Pryor. At the Comedy Store. Uh, yeah, Jim Carrey, oh. Roseanne, oh. Um, like Sandra Bernhardt, Whoopi Goldberg. They were all there. Craig T. Nelson. <laughs> they all came through there. <laughs> Michael Keaton. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, but I, is it, do you go through these phases, and I think about maybe even Saturday Night Live like this, where you do have a, kind of a rock star cast and then it might undulate to like nobody's a real rock star and it's kind of weak and then the comedy store doesn't do well and then you get a couple home runs is it does it undulate like that absolutely absolutely so when i first came in it was crickets uh at the store uh we would do a show if there were at least three people in the audience or five people you know that low hey hey you want to come in like we'll pay you to come in you know comics were just like please please so we could do a show and it was well, how the hell did it stay in business then? What you know, how did it even survive? Because Mitzi was determined to succeed, and she she mortgaged the house, she mortgaged everything. T- tell our audience who, who Mitzi is. So Mitzi Shore uh, got the Comedy Store in a divorce, but she actually came up with the name of the Comedy Store. Uh, her husband Sammy and um, another gentleman started the club, mm-hmm. but she ran it and created it, made it into something. And then they get divorced and she took it over and she took it over. Yeah. And I think partially what happened, cause she used to say, you know, the improv people hate me. And I'm like, Oh, Mitzi, you're crazy. But there, you know, Bud lost the improv in New York in a divorce. And so I guess he rechanneled his energy when he got to LA sort of at, at Mitzi in the comedy store. So she was determined to make it succeed. Mm-hmm. And so she mortgaged everything. People don't realize how much debt she- Just like any other business. Yeah. yeah, like an entrepreneur who's really doubling, doubling down. She's like, we're gonna make it happen. And I, I think like for me, the coolest thing in the history of the store, I've been there 25 years, uh, is that by the time she got sick and when she passed, we had paid off all the debt mm. and had turned the club around so that she was. What, what was the inflection point? Who was there? Did you save the comedy store? Or no, was I, it, I, who, who was the. Multiple people. What, what were the comics that kind of brought it out from the depths of despair? Well, I mean, I think at different times, you know, when she first started the club, JJ Walker was brought everybody in the club. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was um, Richard Pryor and there was Robin Williams. Uh, and and like during those periods, like when Robin Williams and Richard Pryor, like he was. Oh, I mean, he and not really m- many people bigger. There was a time when he was a local guy, or was right. he already national at that point? No, these people all. David Letterman, you know, was was hosting every night, and he was ready to drive back to Indiana. And Missy's like, "No, you got to stay." And um, so these guys were just people mm-hmm. that were not known. Uh, Jay Leno. Those are all comedy store guys, and but they were awesome. And then like you and you early on three was, people how many people would then get packed out in a in well a you know in the last couple of years we were doing three shows a night in the main room packed out every single show how many um, how many people fit um well 400 in the main room 150 to 200 in the or and 50 theoretically 40 50 maybe 70 yeah uh, in the belly room so the so again and, and tickets are what on average uh 20 25 bucks but it, but it really then kind of pulled it out and then did you then how do how do you get something as 
It's almost like a, I think of comedy almost like a, a football team where you're drafting and you're hoping it's going to work. You're bringing yeah. in people. Is it is it a little bit more sustainable now? How do you make it more well, sustainable? Well, you know, I still think comedy goes in cycles, mm-hmm. you know, and there's lots and lots of clubs. Pandemic shut down a lot, a lot of clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the art of comedy is something that is always going to be needed and always going to be around because it's a voice of truth. And even in stressful times, I mean, Austin has 10 clubs. Mm-hmm. Where where are we in that? The, the business, really, we're talking about the business of comedy. I, it was, I think, either Kevin Hart or somebody more recently has been complaining that like it's in the in the world we live in today where you can't say anything before you get canceled and we all we all know that we're in a hypersensitive world and you yeah. can kind of get canceled for anything isn't that harder for you guys now or maybe not for your jokes right <laughs> like you're like but like is it in general more is it more difficult though right now i i mean i think it is i think people are more sensitive david spade it was david spade i just read an article that he said i'm just so scared to say anything these days or is that just a PR stunt on his no, part? No, no, I think it's true. I think people are really, really sensitive. You know, she said this or he said that. I mean, it's comedy people. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't need to walk in super activated, just looking for, you know, come in and just look to have some fun. Um, so I do think people are super sensitive right now. And I think there's a lot going on in the world. So people are super amped. Um, you know, we've been enclosed in our homes and uh, all kinds of things. So it is it is hard. Transitioning more to the money side. So your track is that you were a CPA already. Mm-hmm. You're also a stand-up comic. You're working there. You kind of take over the books. You're the CFO now. Mm-hmm. And you're still the CFO. Still the CFO. And during that period of time, so what What would you talk about from a money perspective? So you mentioned the, the, our pets have value, which is my favorite part about comedy is to take, and I guess Seinfeld was is a good example of this, is just to take the the same thing that all of us go through as humans, like right. the pet thing. Right. And in my mind, I've always, I've never really thought of it as funny, but it is kind of hilarious. And I, we all have had the conversation. Right. Like Lynn just the other day was like, oh, well, Josie, who's our, we have a shepherd and we have a, uh, we have a, a, a big lab, like a big lab and Josie's getting older and Josie, right. like now she has to get take this because her spine isn't great and her, she can't go on walks. And then she's like, but there's a new therapy right. that we can do. And she gets an injection once a month. And it's something like, like it's like Humera, like, you know, on the Phil Mickelson, right. it's like 60 grand, a, you know, I don't know, a year or something. Like, I was like, I was like, I, I love Josie, yeah. but sick. I mean, like, seriously, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, it's yeah. that. Come on. No, exactly. What kind of neighborhood is that, by the yeah, way? Yeah, exactly. Saying it's a good thing they don't have kid value days, right? Because right. you'd be like, Billy. <laughs> I know. I guess that one is probably, that's, that's still unlimited. But, that's still. Yeah. But, but when it comes to a dog or cat, now Mallory, our producer, she has seven cats. What? So oh, I, no. I think actually the number's lower for her because it's multiplied by so many cats. She's probably lying, too, because it's probably <laughs> like, 12 and she's already feeling the shame at seven <laughs> when a cat person tells you they have five that means they really have 10 there's a cat that's, multiple that's right that's actually right. i really don't i think she has one uh, her cat's name like peanut or pumpkin lice pump, pumpkin, pumpkin spice pumpkin spice latte i can't yeah. keep up with all the names there's so that's many right. but let, okay so today is your how much of your routine do you talk about money items or is it or only once in a while when something hits you? Well, you know, mostly my humor is, uh, you know, making fun of myself, uh, dark humor. I go dark. Uh, but 
I don't talk about money a lot because people don't really find it that interesting, you know? Mm. Um, I mean, I do do some jokes about that stuff, but I, you know, my joke used to be, um, I'm a CPA, uh, which stands for can't pay anything because I was broke as hell, but you can't know, pay anything, can't pay anything. But right. like, if you've got the credential, like banks were like, whatever Bob says, you know, I'm like, oh my God, if you knew, cause <laughs> I, my finances were terrible when you like, oh, I'll be a stand up comic. It'll bring in millions. And, uh, yeah, that was a dream. And it's like pro golf. There's like yeah. 10 guys that make a ton and every, nobody else makes any money. Is that kind of the way yeah. it is? Yeah. And, and so a lot of these people, yeah, they're making 20 bucks a night. $20? Yeah, we pay 20 now. $20 a night. Yeah. Okay. For the whole for night. 15. In the main room, it gets split. There's different ways or certain people get door deals. And uh, it's, yeah, it's not a lot of money. But as an accountant, yeah, I, I, was, I was terrible financially. I knew what to do. I knew what to tell other people to do. I just didn't do it myself. Uh, the, so so, we, to, so when did you come up with the concept of money, the money nerve, and then tell our audience about this? And, and, and how much does that have to do with, I, to some extent, you're coming from a, a very interesting place. It's even, we always hear about the plight of professional athletes. It's like right. only a certain amount of percentage from even college, only 5% of college athletes can yeah. go to the, you know, go, go to pros. And then some of them, they don't, they may, only a few of them actually make huge money and the few that, a few, most or 90% make good money for only two or three years and they spend it all. It's, it's probably worse than comedy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard and it's so like, I have friends that have made it big and now they're back to not making it big. Like they're just like living in a studio apartment. Right. And at one point they were super famous. They were on a couple of TV shows and, and now don't have money and now don't have money. Like had so much and lost. When you say it. so much, like what's a, you go back to the early I mean, 2000. What can what, when you say make it big? How much are how much is a comic making? I mean, five six million dollars. No kidding. And those are and no. Would that be a household name or is that like pre, yeah pre household? No household. Mm-hmm. Doing stuff on television and you know Saturday night Saturday Night Live, all those things. Doing venues. Uh, and then and then it goes it goes away. Then it goes away. Bad investment choice. A lot of and I have a lot of. Uh, clients that are actors and things, they'll think, oh, this series is going to go on forever. You know, it's a limited series. There's only six shows. You're not going <laughs> to, it's going to end. Right. But they'll keep thinking they're going to make a million dollars an episode. And, you know, I had a client who came to me, and goes, oh, they canceled the show and they've offered me. Now they only want to pay me $50,000 an episode instead of 300. I said, really, how many other shows are you being offered? <laughs> he's like, came back. He's like, I took the 50,000. I'm wow. like, yeah, like, you're living in a bubble. Yeah. And these are all, and these are creatives. You're an interesting kind of both sides of the brain, I right. guess you've got. That's right. Left brain, right brain. But a lot of comics are just straight up, I guess what's right, right brain. brain, straight up right brain. And they'll have a run for a couple of years and then it just dry, it can dry up very easily. It goes so quick. It goes so quick. Or like in today's culture, somebody says something offensive and all of a sudden your, your money sources dry up, right? You get canceled. You're not in the show. They, they cancel your TV series, uh, take you off YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Okay. You can get, uh, have comics gotten pl- pulled off YouTube? I don't know. I just, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> just make cancel culture YouTube. Yeah. Wow. Deplatformed. Terrible. Well, all right. So then, then I guess is, is that what goes it? Tell me about the money. Nerd. Yeah. So what happened, it was a combination. I was looking at my own life of going, wow, as a CPA, you're doing terrible personally, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but nobody can know, right? You got to like present well. And a lot of my 
clients that were in the creative arts but weren't comics were coming to, the, the taxi sessions were turning into therapy sessions and people were telling me stuff that they probably shouldn't have been telling me and i'm like oh my god there's all this like what is this everybody's got this shame and they're like i don't want anybody to know and i file well, give me an example yeah i want to hear about um, this and you obviously you don't have to tell any names so nobody's gonna know so who these Bill people Smith. are no um <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I had people that had filed bankruptcy or nobody knew that they were on the verge of bankruptcy and they were mm -hmm. signing deals and, and misrepresenting or just that they were so ashamed that they had two or $300,000 worth of credit card debt and everybody thought they had this amazing life. Whoa. And, and so I was seeing that all the time, especially in LA. And just there was so much debt and people were living way beyond their means and telling me like how poor they were. I'm like, ah, oh, you you just put a million dollars in your bank account. Mm -hmm. You're not that. You might, you know, cash flow might be tight, but you're not poor. You're mm -hmm. like, go to India. That's poor. Yeah. And and so, but people would share these stories, and they would start crying. I have lots of Kleenex in my office, and people would tell me things. And I was at the comedy store one day in the main room, and one of my friends came in, and she was crying, and she's like, you know, I was just visiting my family who are all doctors, <laughs> and everybody's shaming me because, like, I chose to do comedy and follow my passion. I'm the stupidest person in the world. Mm -hmm. And I said, man, listen, I see most of those people's finances and their tax returns. You're not the stupidest person in the world. And most of those people that you say you want to be like, you don't really want to be like because they're driving around in a fancy car, but they're spending their whole month trying to figure out how to pay for that fancy car and that fancy house. And they're in complete stress and they're freaking out. She's what? Yeah. Even so you're talking about now non-comics at this point, yeah. right? Because LA is oh, a producers, directors, actors, Oh, a special place where it is. I, I guess I can't think of another place where th there's more glitz and, and the image. Of, like, so people, so maybe for our, our audience, it's in, Austin or yeah. in Kansas or in Michigan, they, they, can you paint up just a little picture of what what is that even like? Like people really are out spending way like you look you've yeah. seen two three hundred grand in credit card debt. Oh yeah, like a lot of people. Really? Yeah. And what are they buying with it? Like what is what's oh, the lifestyle they're supporting? You know, I I have a I have a client who spent hundred thousand dollars on clothes, mostly like two hundred dollar pairs of underwear and. $100 pairs of socks. Wow. <laughs> like, I'm like just in shock to yeah. think about this. I'm like, that's a lot. Because we hear about overspending, but I guess there's there's nothing like LA. And is it yeah. because, is it your tip? So you're talking, we're talking about the, the money nerve here. Is it just the same keep up with the Joneses thing, but it, on steroids out in LA? I think so. And I think there's also this, like, look at me, I'm special, right? LA is a little bit, you know, narcissistic. Yeah, yeah. There I say. And uh, it's so it's like, look at me. Look, look, look. I'm more special. And I've got more followers or more people like me. And I drive a fancier car. And, and so there's this presentation that I think a lot of people get sucked into. Um, and, and, and really, and, and then real estate out there, right? To buy a house in oh, LA. It's ridiculous. <coughs> it's ridiculous. It's like, I mean, a house in LA is, I mean. Yeah, $2 million gets you like a shoebox. It's awesome. So just the house purchase can throw people quickly yeah. into real leverage, right? I yeah. mean, I, I would think just a house, you could yeah. end up with a $5 million house. It's not even that amazing. That's right. And you got to have a huge inflow in order to pay for a $5 million house. Yeah, absolutely. Or win the lottery or have, you know, inherited wealth. I mean, there were a lot of people probably in the mid nineties, um, early two thousands, a lot of clients of mine made a whole bunch of money on their houses 
even though it's still continuing. And then they all moved back to Texas. They moved back to Tennessee. They moved back to Florida um, when they had kids because they thought, well, I don't want to raise my kids in, in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I've made so much money on my house. I could go take a normal job. Mom and dad can babysit the kids. And so I had a lot of clients moving out of L.A. once they get in and, and the house almost saved them. Yeah. The house appreciation. Yeah, absolutely. And are these people that go from like the movie business, the, the arts, entertainment, comedy to like normal jobs or, or not normal, just some, <laughs> something totally separate? Yeah, a lot of them do. And I, I think most people, L.A. is really seductive and fun. Um, and then after a while, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you go to other places and say, wow, people aren't so stressed out. People aren't trying to kill you in their car or assault you when you just sit down at a park. Mm, well, how do, you, nice. how do you handle L.A. then? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I love L.A. I mean, you just, you know, carry a gun and kick people. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, you have to. <laughs> carry. That's not nice. Yeah. You, you, you have to be really aware of your surroundings. Like, you know, if I'm out downtown, I'm not running around going, hey, and I, you know, I just sort of keep to myself, but mm-hmm. walk with a purpose. Um, and it, it's, it's man, it, it is, it's getting worse with the homeless. I've had people knock on my door. Um, hey, can I, you know, I'm just like, and you got to try to find that balance of not getting uh, completely uh, negative and, and all that. Easy to point out a lot of bad things in LA. Easy to point out a lot of stuff. The so the so the money nerve is about the emotion of so emotion how did we work through that and what yeah, did you so, talk about baby steps to do this yeah so basically what happened for me was I realized that people were making decisions emotionally but unconsciously for so, example so I had a client who every three years her business would get really really successful and then it would fall apart hmm. and I'd known her a while and so finally I said hey you know I'm curious what, what industry uh, PR. Okay. And so she would make a couple million dollars and that would go for two or three years and then it would just completely fall apart. And so I, we started just doing, because I also have a, a little bit of a therapy background, counseling. So I, because I'm bored. Bob Wheeler, right, comic, know. CPA, <laughs> therapist. Yeah. Jesus, Bob. Well, you, know, you got to do something. Got to fill the time. So I asked her, we started looking and it turned out that she didn't think her mom loved her when she got really successful. So she would crash the business. Her mom would come in and save her. And then she knew her mom loved her. And then she would start over. So I, I said, like, maybe you could just ask her to give you a hug until she loves you and not go through this whole freaking drama. It's like, ah, yeah, I didn't realize that. So there's a lot of that where people are unconsciously sabotaging. I had a client who his business was going completely under and he got offered a job like $250,000 to be a partner at this firm and he would have everything paid for it would have gotten him out of debt. And I said, you know, you should go for this. He said, my parents will be really disappointed if I close my business. I'm like, it's going to go under. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, but I, I'm just going to have to let it go under. I can't proactively close my business and make a healthy choice. And, and, and it did, it, it went under. And it went under. How often do you see people that, that do get kind of get some religion, understand they, the therapy almost works. They go through enough issues that the PR example, the business example, do they ever almost rectify it and solve it and kind yep. of go into a new chapter? And how do yeah. they do that? Well, you have to get real and it's not, it's not fun. Mm-hmm. I had a client who came to me and he said, my business is going to go under and I looked at all the stuff and I said, well, you have to lay everybody off. You, you need to lay off everybody, but maybe two people. And he said, well, I promised everybody that if things got tough, that they would all have their jobs. And I said, well, you're going to have to go back to them and say, 
I overpromised. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I don't know. I'm have to think about this because I made a promise. I said, well, it's going to cost you. You're going to go under. So he came back to me and he said, you know what? I laid everybody off. And he just, he whittled the budget down to nothing. He got rid of two or three of the buildings and everything. 18 months later, he hit it a got a bunch of high paying jobs with a bunch of studios. He hired everybody back oh, wow. and, and he's turned the company around. And now it's like, we're always trying to figure out how not to pay taxes on the, on the millions of because dollars. Because he's, he's, he's killing making. it. Yeah. And well, and also California, you've got the not state tax, you know, is massive. 12%, 13% can continuing. I, I think that's the other thing. So if you're a, a big earner and you hit it big, you are really paying a, really a full 50%. Right? You are. You are. Straight up 50%. You are. Yeah. You are. And you got to really love California. You really got to love the beaches. <laughs> you do. But it's so it's almost impossible to afford being on the beach. It is. Man. Well, that's like 20 million. At least. Yeah. You know. Only in California. Only in California. Well, any coast actually. Now, even like the Gulf Coast where we're that's the that's the closest to in Atlanta, the uh, we can drive about 5 hours south and you go to the Gulf Coast and it used to be affordable, like not uh, like a lot of places in the United States. It got really unaffordable, really expensive, and then COVID tr- the prices went almost went up almost fifty percent. So yeah. a be uh, uh, to be on the water went from five to it crept up to seven, eight, and then it just jumped to fifteen. So now yeah. to be on the water to be on the coast in the Gulf of Florida right. is like fifteen million dollars at this point. That's insane. The so baby steps. Now you've done some. You've done a lot of travel. You've done some crazy travel, like India, China, Nepal, Egypt. Well, yeah. What's what's that about? What are you doing? Well, you know, what are you doing on your travels? Doing? I'm crazy. Well, I'm crazy. So my first trip was running a marathon in Greece. I ran the original uh, course, not the original marathon. I wasn't old enough, but um, <laughs> a friend. And so that was my first trip. A friend said, "Hey, do you want to go to Greece?" And I said, "Well, only rich people can travel. I'm not rich. I can't go." And he's like, "You're an idiot." And I went, what? I can travel? So that was like my first breakthrough on mindset. And so I traveled. I met this woman in Greece at the um, at the Parthenon. And we got to talking and we became friends. And then she's like, I got to take you to Africa. I'm like, is there a marathon? She's like, cool, yeah. So we would go. Oh, wait, so you went for a so marathon. So we went, we're going for a marathon. That's so and good. Because it, it's got to be practical, yeah. right? You got to have a reason to but travel. But you, are you doing marathons in all these places? I was. I Not anymore. But, but what are the places? That's pretty, that's amazing. I've never heard of anybody travel. I guess I a, do. I, I hear of people traveling for triathlons to like yeah. Hawaii or Australia, but, but they have never running. There, there was a, there was a marathon at the base camp of, um, of Mount Kilimanjaro. So we hiked to Kilimanjaro and came mm-hmm. back, back the next day and we ran a marathon. <laughs> like, what? Yeah. Who did I know? Wait, Kilimanjaro is, I thought that was one of those, like, takes like a week and oxygen a, tank. It and, takes about, no, it takes about three and a half, four days to get there. And then on the final. I mean, to the, to the summit. To mean. the summit. Yeah. And yeah, it's, and it. <laughs> Don't eat the chicken because they were carrying chicken and stuff and it was not refrigerated. I just ate a lot of popcorn and peanut butter. But uh, we got to the top and uh, you go to sleep in the afternoon and then at 11 o'clock at night, they wake you up and you make the final descent because it's so hot during the day. And uh, and they didn't have Diamox, stuff like that. So what is that? What is that? That helps your blood thin so you don't get altitude sickness. Mm-hmm. So we all got altitude sickness. So you're like, and we're walking to the top like zombies and at night at night. And then we get there at sun, uh, sunrise and it's just gorgeous. And you're like, but you're ready to throw it's up. Beautiful. Yeah. And, uh, it was amazing. And then 
most everybody just like slid down back to the next uh, where our base camp was. Uh, my friend, she's like, I'm not going to slide down. We have to zigzag all the way back down the mountain. I'm like, that's great. So we zigzag back in extreme heat. It was fun. So you did. So you've done Kilimanjaro. You've mm-hmm. done, and then you ran a marathon after that, or that was yeah, the, the next marathon. Day. No, the next day, ran a marathon. So yeah. you were in like amazing shape for a long, Back long time. Then, yeah. Gosh, it's amazing. Well, I was, yeah, I was kickboxing and doing all this other stuff. So what, so I guess to some extent you, there's a lot there is that you've got the, the cost of travel, what these things taught you, how would you play that into the money nerve? Well, I think for me, I would just, you know, the first couple trips were on credit cards and paying it back later was not fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I went to Nepal, uh, a few years ago, Everybody, we did the first day and all my friends went, uh, that's really freaking hard. Let's just go back to Kathmandu and get massages. <laughs> and I'm like, no, <laughs> I just paid a lot of money. We're going to finish this trip. And I didn't know what to do because nobody wanted to continue. Um, and me, I wanted to get my money's worth, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm like, what about this? Let's just hike for an hour and then renegotiate. We'll decide if we'll hike another hour. And so we hiked the first five how many days. People? So, so you're with a group of how many people? There were six of us. And you went to go do the hike mm-hmm. in Nepal. In Nepal. And how, day one, they're, they're after the, the first day. At the end of day, day one, like, uh-uh. everybody's like, let's just go back tomorrow. And we hadn't even gotten out of the, like, the national park. We were just hiking. It's pretty extreme, but mm-hmm. you hike through and then, then you've got, you know, your 15 days of. So trekking. five out of six say, no, we're going back. And, what, right. did, and what did you say? I just said, let's, let's hike for an hour and then decide if we're going to hike any further. And so they were like, all right, we'll do an hour. So we hiked an hour. You want to keep going? All right, we'll do another hour. And so we just did it in hour increments for the first five days. And then after a while, people were like, all right, we'll go further. <laughs> like we're already, we're already here. But yeah, that was just me trying to figure out how not to lose my money. <laughs> yeah. Well, what did, so it, what did it teach you then? But it taught me that when, whatever we do, if we take digestible bites, if we take baby steps, if we, I think most people, especially in LA, but I think everywhere people are trying to get from A to Z. Mm -hmm. And if I can just get people to focus on getting to B and then getting to C and then to D, and then eventually we'll get to Z or maybe we won't, but we'll have a great time on the way. And we're going to be in each moment as we're getting there, instead of just trying to like blow past all the hard work and just arrive. So, so it is a really, so you can, that's a very, so from a practical standpoint, that really does apply to, to our finances. And then really, particularly in the, in the world you live in, which, and the A to Z mentality, listen, that's, that's not just in LA. Yeah, that's, for sure. That's everywhere. Sure. And, and there's some value to having bigger aspirations, mm-hmm. but to, to your point is like, look, the reality is that 99% of us don't go from A to Z. Right. 99% of us have to go to, or I'm sorry, A to Z. Right. 99% of us don't go to a, from A to Z right away. We, we, we methodically get there. That's right. And if you, and you, what you, do you teach that as a CPA? Um, I teach it in workshops where I do workshops around money and emotions to just help people start to realize. I mean, yes, I certainly talk about that as a CPA because I incorporate a lot of that when I'm working with my tax clients. So wait, you do talks about money and emotion or the mm-hmm. emotional impact of money. What is that? Yeah. What do those focus on? Is that a big so part I, of it? Or Yeah. So I do workshops. I've been in front of like Transamerica, Ameriprise, all those talking to financial advisors and talking to um, clients mm-hmm. about like, what do you want? What's your story? 
because most people say, oh, I'm broke, I'm broke, instead of I'm cash poor at mm-hmm. the moment. At the moment. <laughs> right, at the moment, or lots of moments. Or, you know, I'm broke, I'm broke, and yet they just spent $5,000 taking a trip to Acapulco, mm-hmm. right? And so trying to get people to be more honest about what's true, and then having people look back at their history and see how that played a role. So, for example, I had a, a client, she was very averse to success, and she realized that, she didn't like her mom as a single parent going out and working jobs to feed them because mm-hmm. it wasn't ladylike because all her friends had moms that made lunches for them. Mm-hmm. So she's like, I'm never going to be like my mom. And so she would just push away at anything and not learn anything about money until a little bit later when it wasn't serving her. And she said, ah, this isn't good. I need to do something different. Adverse to success. Yeah. Many people are adverse to success. Why do you think so? That's Well, because when you have success, People will judge you. People will not root for you to go further. You have to have boundaries. You have to be able to say no. You know, and I think for a while with me, that was my story. My mom, when my parents got divorced, said, you have to make enough money for all your siblings and I to have the life we deserve. And I have four siblings. And I thought, I'm not paying for five other people. What would you so, like? Would you get an NFL contract? What was, are you doing? They just decided I was going to be successful with money because I liked money as a kid. And you're a which, CPA. And I'm a CPA. And uh, and even then, when I was thinking about money as a kid, money's greedy. You're greedy. I'm like, okay, but you want me to have lots of it so I can give it to you. Well, I'm going to stay broke so that I can honestly tell you I don't have any money. Instead of learning how to say, "Hey, you go out and make your own money, and I'll go out and make mine. And if I decide to share it, I will." But not because I'm guilted. And have you done some of that, or did you, have they gotten some religion around that? Yeah, no, we've had some. Uh, we've had some good uh, come to Jesus moments with um, you know with my family and me being able to say like this is how it is for me. Mm-hmm. Painful, but in in the long run, it actually more authentic relationships and and actually being able to be honest with each other. God, what an amazing combination Bob Wheeler is. There's so many different pieces that you put together. You, you, you're like a totally new version of the gig economy, right? And, and, and you, you're, your gigs are all different. I don't know if I've ever seen the combination of comic, therapist, CPA, speaker, uh, writer. Uh, and when, when, did, when did you write Money Nerf? Uh, I actually wrote it about eight years ago and then just updated it. Uh, so th- this stuff. is the this edition is the brand new one yeah. that people can find on Amazon. Amazon or there's the ebook version um, on the website. And where where do people find you? What is the what is your website? Themoneynerve.com. Themoneynerve.com. Because it hits a nerve, right? You win the lottery, ah, we get excited. It's visceral. You overdraw your bank account, you almost vomit. Yeah. <laughs> Man, what what an amazing uh, continuum you just you just described, uh, Bob Wheeler. Thank you. Super super interesting. Uh, you're the only comic we've had on, and um, very cool to hear your story. Yeah, thanks so much. Oh, I appreciate the time, and I hope people out there like become the best versions of themselves and get conscious and intentional about their spending. That's what I want to do. Help Enjoy people. Austin and FinCon, and uh, maybe I'll see you at the Tamale Shop. Sounds good. I'll be there. Hi, right, Bob. Hey, y'all, this is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner Podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. 
This podcast is provided to you as a resource for informational purposes only and is not to be viewed as investment advice or recommendations. This information is being presented without consideration of the investment objectives, risk tolerance, or financial circumstances of any specific investor and might not be suitable for all investors. It is not intended to and should not form a primary basis for any investment decision that you may make. Always consult your own legal, tax, or investment advisor before making any investment or financial planning considerations. Please refer to the full disclosure in the podcast description for any additional information. Information.